Boys in the Valley is a horror thriller set at the turn of the century. Most of this story takes place in 1905. It takes place at a remote boys orphanage in rural Pennsylvania where uh, these boys kind of live together as family and they're overseen by these group, small group of priests and they kind of are trying to find their way to get through every day. They're malnourished and they're cold and they're, you know, they're your outcasts of society. And then one stormy night, something comes to the orphanage doors and it brings something that none of them were expecting. And it, it's an evil that permeates the orphanage and, um, and the boys find themselves changed to a degree and they find themselves sort of taking sides to a degree. And um, the story boys in the Valley is all about what happens when that, when that occurs and, um, and the violence and terror that ensues until the, uh, the bitter end. The way the book's described on Amazon, um, it basically talks about how um, Peter is at this orphanage and um, something bad goes down one night and something is something evil is kind of released and is infecting the orphanage and then uh, subsequently the children. Um, And so really uh, it plays out a lot like, you know, um, possession story. So do you have uh, a fascination with, with possessions or, or um, do you kind of enjoy that type of story? Because I feel like that's kind of having a little bit of a resurgence lately, maybe. Possession stories. Um, Yeah. No, uh, no, not really. I think this is only the. I think this is the only time I've written a possession. Um, I don't know if it's the only one I've written, but I I don't write a lot of possession stories. And um, and while there are elements of possession, I guess in the book, um, it's really never stated. Um, so it's kind of um, the manifestation of evil, if you will, um, that takes place in the story um, is never really spelled out. It's always fairly ambiguous as to, um, you know, what exactly is um, causing the children to act the way they act. Um, and uh to what degree the visitors who come in the night um, affect, have affected the children uh, mm-hmm. who are affected. Um, so yeah, I don't see it personally as a possession story. Um, I totally get why people would classify it that way. Um, I definitely see it more as um, um you know, a story where, where, uh, innocence uh, is, is corrupted by a sort of outside malevolent force. Um, but I don't know if it's, but I wouldn't call it necessarily possession as much as I would, um, influence if you will, but, but yeah, but it's kind of right. It kind of rides those rails for sure. You know, that's actually perfect because I was trying to think of the way that I was like, I was, usually I try to kind of explain the story to myself so that I know I've, I've got like a solid idea of 
what I've just read and um, especially toward the later part of the book, the thing that I kind of came away with was that it's um, it's the influence of good or the influence of evil on a person and what they do from that is kind of what I felt because obviously there's an influence of evil aspect, which is, you know, big, kind of larger than life. But there is the other side of the coin, which is Peter, who ostensibly this is Peter's story, um, is one of the older orphans and he wants to become a priest. um, But he's got his own kind of personal conflicts with exploring, you know, love and affection and things because he's a teenager. Um, So we also see the kind of influence of good and how that causes people to act, too. So I'm actually kind of happy that we kind of pivoted away from possession to kind of talk more about that. Cause I feel like that was kind of my bigger influence or not, excuse me, my bigger impression walking away from it was, it was more like what we do with the influences, either good or evil. Yeah, there's, I definitely think um, each character uh, has their own response to the, um, the presence that is kind of uh, is dwelling the halls of St. Vincent's orphanage. Um, and I think it's a very good point to say that there are characters who go completely one way, um, most likely because of what they have, because of what something they already have inside of them, whether it be hate or anger or a desire for vengeance or whatever, um, the hostility. Um, and then there's people like Peter who, um, you know, maybe is has more of a shield versus that sort of thing because of his character um, and because of his desires and, and his motivations. And then there's characters like David, um, who you can kind of sense throughout the book that there's a conflict um, within him as to how to respond to what's happening. And even even more so the character of Brother Johnson, who um, who really... <laughs> who really kind yeah. of rides the spectrum of, of, of good and evil um, and really has a lot of inner turmoil that, uh, that, that pulls him different ways. He has guilt, he has menace, but he also has this kind of weird um, goodness inside him. So um, that's hard to, that's not obvious. So um, yeah, so that's a great way to put it is they all have their own sort of way of responding and, and then there's also a little bit of mob mentality to the story and to what happens with the, with the children and um, how, how leaders emerge and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of where it comes I think that's where it's um, that and them being children in an isolated setting, I think, are why people, reviewers and whatnot, mention Lord of the Flies um, because there's that sort of like people, kids picking sides sort of thing. Um but, uh, but yeah, so that's, it's definitely present. I actually never, I haven't actually read Lord of the Flies. I'm kind of interested to read it now that I've, this <laughs> book has come out. Um, because, uh, but, uh, but I've just seen a lot of that in the reviews and stuff. I know it's a golding book, but for whatever reason, I never picked it up. Um, but I, I, I am curious to read it though and see, and see, uh, and see how golding hand, handles a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of kids in a bad situation. Yeah. And, um, oh man. And I read that it was likely, you know, in, um, 
you know, middle school or whatever. So probably multiple decades ago by now. So whatever impression I had is, is very, very faded, (laughs) but um, yeah, I've seen that comparison too. And reading the book, I, it, it makes sense why people would like it kind of like me saying the possession thing. It's kind of a shorthand for a, a concept or something, an easy way to, to kind yeah, of express Yeah, I something. think I think Nightfire's tagline is the actresses meets Lord of the Flies. I think that's what they I think that's how they're marketing the book. So um which yeah. is which is fine. I get to cross the major, I think, thematic elements of the story pretty well. That elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And now, um, like you said, kids in a bad situation. Um what I thought was cool about the setting being an orphanage and being the, um, what is it? It's early 1900s, right? Yeah. Get that? It's like 1905. Yeah. 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 Um, is that their kind of whole life is just like, they've never had it good. Um, you, we get some backstories in various amounts of detail for the different boys that are there. And it seems like the kind of theme is they got there for, cause something bad went, something bad happened in their lives. And then it's not a, you know, fun place to be. You don't eat, eat a lot of food. There's a lot of rules you have to work. Um, it's, it's not fun. There's, it's just very strict and grueling. So, um, then my thought was if I was in that situation as a kid, how much will would I have to try to overcome like an even worse thing? Like, would I already be, kind of worn down to the point where I was like, well, you know, forget it. I don't, I just don't care. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, susceptib- yeah, I think there's a susceptibility uh, the kids have to um, the evil that infests the orphanage because they are, they are so worn down. Um, you know, they, they are malnourished. They are, um, the downtrodden and the outcast of this of society, you know, um, they've all had their own, to your point, they all have their own stories, some of which I get into, some of which I don't, but, um, yeah. So I think they're kind of sponges for, for, um, something that gives them a sense of strength or a sense of, um, initiative or a sense of agency. Um, and I think that, that when that is released among them, I think that it, it's, it's, it's a perfect storm of, um, of like that um, that wide open window of susceptibility that the kids have, and this incredible um, evil uh, that 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 shows up at their doorstep. So I think that it's an explosive sort of combination with that, which in turn makes the book itself so incredibly dark um, because of because yeah. uh, because of how they respond. Uh, to it and uh, and it's you know and it's, it's I think the you know the uh, the idea of picking sides is um, was one that I enjoyed kind of playing with uh, amongst the different boys and sort of their personalities and and trying to decide who went which way and um, so yeah that was it added a layer of sort of um, uh, uh, suspense I think to the terror because you never weren't really sure who was, who was, um, who was in which camp until the very end. Some, some, Mm -hmm. at least with some of the characters. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, talking about it being dark, um, 
like I was thinking about starting this conversation just being like Jesus, man, because there are some there's some scenes that are really um, pretty intense, pretty pretty graphic and stuff. Um, but I don't think yeah. that it's ever in a gratuitous way. It's always in like a like the way it's written is well, it's a little gratuitous. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> it's but, okay. Okay, I, that's I don't, right. mind little, I don't mind being a little gratuitous. Um, it is but a in a in a starkly real way, not in a, um, uh, like a glorification way. It's like, not cartoony. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, and this is the first, um, thing I've read from you, but we, you're one of those people that's always been on my orbit and I see these beautiful covers and I'm always head down in like four other things. And, and so like, that's my lame apology for, for, you know, um, not knowing your work more, but from listening to you on other things, that's definitely something it seems like you don't shy away from is getting pretty real with the, uh, the gruesome parts of things. Right. Yeah. That's um, I think if I have a, a calling card or of sorts for my stories is they're pretty um, my stories are very character driven, um, which is not necessarily the most common thing when it comes to the horror genre. Um and they're also very grounded for the most part. Um, most of my stories are very grounded in reality and very real emotions and very real thoughts and feelings that readers quickly uh, connect with. And then when, um, and then I write pretty visceral uh, horror. Um, and I think that pe- readers are greatly affected by that because they're now invested in these characters, um, you know, that are three dimensional and living, breathing people. And I'm described, you know, sometimes in explicit detail, you know, what happens to the characters in my stories. And, and I, and I, and there's a sort of like dark glee that I feel doing those kind of things, but obviously it's what I do for a living. But, um, but yeah, so I think that it's more impactful all the times. I think um, I, you know, to the point where I get um, with some of my stories and some of my books, you know, I get a lot of uh, angry reviews. I get a lot of angry readers because they feel like I've because I've upset people, and I, um, on a, on a level to the extent that they've, you know, like I'm ruining people's days, kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, but hey, you know. <laughs> welcome to the party pal right it's it's horror so um yeah i don't mind doing that i don't mind ruining people's days but um because i think it's it's all part of entertainment entertainment and um and i like to deliver what people are paying for and and uh so yeah but that's i think reason i tend to get very um visceral what like i said when i'm describing sort of the things that are happening and i have a certain way of that I do that. Um, but yeah, but I, but my main focus is always the characters first, really building up the setting, really getting the reader immersed in that world. And with those, with those, um, with those characters and then kind of pulling the rug out, um, and bringing the horror in. And that's, you know, that's kind of when things get fun. The building a connection to the characters, making the readers care about the characters. Um, in the beginning, it was a little bit through flashbacks to like before the kids were in the orphanage and stuff. So you're actually seeing what's happening to them. And then um, Peter has nightmares throughout the, the 
story. So we get to kind of, again, flashback to, or just get an image of, of the things that scare him or worry him. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I noticed about the book was that the attention to making me care about characters, even if it was a character that didn't a- a- appear too much, like, um, what was it that character Ben? I think Ben went in the hole at one point as a punishment and it wasn't, he wasn't set up a ton before that, but there was enough setup of that character that when that kid had to get punished, like I was feeling the anxiety of like, Oh man, I like, I felt bad for that kid. So yeah, I have to give you credit for, um, even if it's like a smaller character, a smaller thread, it's still done enough where, I'm in that kid's shoes freaking out like that kid's freaking out. Yeah. And that was, thank you. And that was one of the challenges of writing this book was there are, which we mentioned before we went live, there are a lot of characters in the book. And, um, and as a writer, it's a very challenging, um, you know, thing to try and create, um, to try and get, you know, to almost create these tiers of characters where, okay, well, I really need the reader to be focused on these guys, these like four or five guys, but I really want them to feel something about these like five or six guys. And then the other like dozen or so, I just need, I need just enough so that they can picture them a little bit, you know? So um, when they walk into a room, they know who I'm talking about. So there's, um, and it's, so it's tricky uh, to do that. But I, and some of that is done through dialogue, um, through voice of the character voice. Um, some of it is done through description. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, but even, just even going to, even going so far as to choosing the names, um, that also comes into it a little bit. You want a distinctive name goes a long way, for example, um, or, or a distinctive accent you know, the way they talk or whatever. So yeah, there's, I think there's a few characters like that where I had to just like, just give you guys just enough being you, the readers just enough so that you wouldn't care and, or at least know who I'm talking about. Cause I think there's 30 kids and I think five, five priests. And then if I'm, my math is, I might be missing a priest. I'm not sure. So there's a lot of care and and there's, then there's other characters that kind of come and go. So yeah, there's a lot of characters to keep track of, but, um, but yeah, the feedback I've gotten so far from people is that it's pretty. Um, I was somewhat successful in 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 that aspect of it, but it was a lot of fun to do that. I really enjoyed it. It wasn't a chore at all. I um, I loved the challenge of that, and it's not something I would shy away from doing again. Um, and I don't like writing period pieces because it is such a pain in the ass to <laughs> write a period piece. But um. And I just got done writing a Civil War novel that's coming out in 2024. Uh, but <laughs> um, Civil War era novel, I should say. But the um, this uh, this was this was a little bit easier in the sense that it was one what we call in the film business, you know, your one location. So you know, you know, you don't have to worry right. about cities or cars or or you know a lot of that kind of stuff that you sometimes have to worry about with period writing period pieces. But um. So yeah, no, but thank you. It was, yeah, the characters were fun and it was fun to give them their personalities and um, and even to such an extent as so, you know, so when they, um, when they are, when, the, when two characters are conflicting that you almost have like a rooting interest to some extent as a reader um, and maybe even are a little bit surprised at times as to 
how a character responds. Um, yeah. Uh, based on what you know about them so far. So yeah, it, it was, it was a fun, it was a fun exercise, but yeah, there are, it is definitely a character driven story, but I think it moves pretty quickly so that you never really get too, I never, I never really get too much into any backstory or I don't, I'm not a fan of slowing things down in my books. I really just like go, 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 go. Um, I'm not a big, like, okay, well let's stop story a and let me take you back now do let me completely change gears and, and make you invest in completely different characters and a completely different setting. That always is something I'm not a huge fan of in books. Um, so I try not to do that in mind. I just, I just like to keep it, keep it going, uh, full throttle, you know, the whole way. Yeah. Um, one specific example that comes to mind where we're talking about, um, the, these characters and it's not necessarily, I, I, I it's just, maybe it's just a, uh, uh, a moment that I really enjoyed, but um, the kid who likes snakes and um, uh, I can't remember the, the character's name, but there's a kid he's outside and he's getting lured to like a shed. Um, and it's early enough in the story where we don't like, nobody should know really there's anything potentially wrong. So, you know, maybe he's you know at the worst he's thinking maybe I'll get bullied or something. But as readers, right. we've known enough where we're like, this might not be good. So like, there's a little bit more for, as a reader, for us to know than that kid. Um, but they lure him in by talking about how they caught a big snake. And um, uh, that like the back story on that kid liking snakes happens in that scene, but it was still enough to like make it feel authentic. So whatever you did, and I don't remember specifically how you did it, um, like I would be, I do the exact same thing as that kid did in that scene. Like you really did a good job yeah. of helping me um, identify with that kid. So if I had to point to a specific example, I'd say that's one where it was like pulled off quick in the moment and still like gave you like the impact of what you wanted it to for a character. Yeah. A lot of times uh, as a writer, I prey upon um what's the best way to put it um, sort of common denominator um, life moments <laughs> like um, so we all have, we've all gone to, you know, when I say we all generally speaking generally, obviously, but we've all gone to a circus at one point in our lives. We've all gone to a community swimming pool at one point in our lives. We've all ridden in the backseat of the car while our parents argued these kind of things are common denominator character traits that I like to give um, my characters because I'm going to hook 90% of my readers into that feeling. And it's an, it's an instant empathy kind connection. Um, I wrote a story called alter uh, that's in my first story collection, uh, behold the void. And which is about this family that goes to a community swimming pool on a Saturday afternoon. And, and I really dive into, no pun intended, I really dive into like a lot of the little moments that I know are um, are things that most people have experienced, and 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 that really that really hooked people into that story and really got them invested immediately into the feeling of that story, the sights, the smells, the sounds, all that stuff. And then when the horror hits, it's like, oh my God, this is awful because I've just <laughs> completely like annihilated your, 
your childhood memories. And, um, and I'm laughing the whole time, but, um, so this, the snake thing is another one, I think where it's just, um, an, an easy connecting point for me to create, to kind of create like an instant empathy, um, with not obviously not everyone has an affinity for snakes, but everyone's seen a snake. Everyone's seen it. You know, I think, I think the way I describe it in the book is at one point he had seen like a, he'd come across a snake while I think while working a field or something and he was fascinated mm-hmm. by it. But, but yeah, so I do like to, those little, any, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just, it's just better to show than tell when you're developing characters. And I think you can say like, Oh, he was a nice kid or he, he was a good kid or he was a bad kid or he was, he was a, he had a bad temper or whatever. But I think it, it's better to have an, ex, like a, an example of that character trait versus informing the reader in the text, you know? So, so that's another thing that I try and do with the characters to try and make them really more very quickly, fully fleshed out and also distinctive from one another, you know, to a degree. Yeah. That's uh, I hadn't really ever thought about it that way, but doing the, giving a character, a, a, a personality trait or a characteristic or whatever that is, like the most easy to connect with is damn smart. And I don't know why I never really thought to think of it that way before, but yeah, I got to imagine that sometimes if you're feeling disconnected from a story, it's because you just don't have like a personal like reference point to, to like connect with, to understand to like your, your emotional, your not emotion, um, your empathy kind of connection or something. So yeah, that's, um, hadn't thought about that, but, um, uh, it's, it's yeah, obviously and sometimes, and sometimes that's okay. Sometimes I don't want you to connect with the character. Um, you know, sometimes I want the character to be a little bit more, um, like even a main character. Sometimes I, I want them to be a little bit more, di- feel a little bit more distant. Um, and I, and in that sense, it's because I want you to be more as a reader. I want you more focused on the story versus the characters I'm talking about. I really want you focused on, um, what's happening. Uh, and it's, it's just a, di- it's just a kind of a different way of doing it, but yeah, but like, so I, I'll keep, sometimes I'll keep a character, um, purposely not two dimensional, not two dimensional, but purposely, um, mysterious. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that you don't really, so that you're like, okay, well, I don't really know what's going on with this person, but look at this thing. They just dug out, dug out of the ground. Like I'm going to, that's interesting. So, it's, it's, it's sort of a way that different, there's different ways to play with, to play the, the, the unkind way to say it is there's different ways to manipulate a reader, but the kind way to say it is the different, there's different ways to, um, to construct a story so that, so the readers, you're kind of, it's a little bit of a sleight of hand as a writer. You're kind of like, yeah. you know, I don't want you looking at this. I want you looking at this, but later on that's going to come into play. Um, and it's going to work for me when I do this reveal or whatever. So, um, and, or, yeah. So, or sometimes the, sometimes the character will do something unexpected because I, or, you, you know, it kind of cuts into the unreliable narrator to a degree sometimes where you think, you know, but you don't really know what the character is thinking and feeling. So that's, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of really different fun ways to kind of construct um, the story world to, you know, yeah. to give a reader a different experience. Yeah. I keep, um, uh, so 
in my not reading books and doing podcast world, I'm a, I got, I'm a trainer, like a corporate trainer. And so a lot of my day is figuring out how do I make you understand stuff you don't care to learn. And so like, mm. I definitely develop tech techniques where, you know, I'm like, how do I make their brain do the thing I want? And so when you were just talking about that, I was like, oh yeah, I know I, I can understand that totally because I have to manipulate yeah. people 40 hours a week. <laughs> that's a tough, yeah, that's a tough gig, man. Yeah. It's, um, corporate training. Yeah. You, you, it's, but it's the same thing that you said. Like, I've got little tricks in my pocket where I, I know this type of person and in this situation to get the result, I have to do this thing, not that thing. So yeah. 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 You just develop a, a, over time you develop skills to get to the result you want. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and definitely something that I've developed more, uh, over the, over the years, you know, where I've, I've, where I've learned how to do different things based on uh, feedback that I get from certain stories and, and, um, and what works and what doesn't work and how people, cause you never really know when you write something, how people res will respond to it. Yeah. You know, you can write something that you think is genius and like <laughs> a total knocked it out of the park kind of deal. And you'll get a very lukewarm response. Um, from, from readers and generally speaking. And then you'll write something where you kind of feel like it's like, it's fine. It's something I did, you know, quickly or whatever. And like people go crazy for it. Like I have, I've always, um, I'm always, I shouldn't say I'm always surprised, but I'm often surprised by um, responses uh, to stories. And even Boys in the Valley um, early on, there were some, early readers who were like, you can't publish this book. Um, oh yeah. Like you, you can't, yeah, no one's going to buy this book kind of thing. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's way too dark and violent and the children on children violence and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, bullshit, man. That's like, that's, that's the oldest, uh, that's the oldest story there is. And, um, and, uh, but so, and then there were some readers who were like, this is brilliant, you know, or whatever. And I love those readers more, but um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> you never really know how people will respond. I just finished a book. I just turned in a book. This I told mentioned it, the civil war book. I just turned it in to my editors. It's coming out next June. And I'm very anxious to see what people think of it because no one's read it yet. And I, sometimes as a writer, you don't really know. Like, and also with me, this might be something that is more of a personal thing, but I tend to, um, I tend to try different things. I really like experimenting with different styles, with different voices, with different story structures. I really like, I don't like standing still and I don't like repeating mm -hmm. myself for the most part. So I'm always trying to write a story a different way or a way I've never written it. Um, and, um, and this is an example of that where I, I went, you know, really the novel I just turned in, you know, was written in a way that I've never written a novel before. And, um, and so, yeah, so you just don't know, you're very curious, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see what people think of it. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's, it's one of those mysteries of being a writer that you don't know till people tell you. Yeah. I have to imagine too, that, I mean, I've talked to dozens of writers over the years and they probably all have their own very unique ways of having relationships with the stuff they've written. Like I know that there's some people who are just um, almost like cheerleaders from not cheerleaders, but um, 
<clears throat> like I, this is my baby. I can't wait for you to experience it or something. Um, yeah. And there's other people who like probably have a much more distanced, like, yeah, there's no one way to feel about something once it's um, done and out in the world. Um, so, well, yeah. I mean the thing, it's like being a, it's like anything. It's like being when you're, I mean, not to sound like, you know, um, poshy spice, but you know, when you're creating art, you know, you, you have to create, you know, when you're a painter or a musician or a writer, you create the best art that you can, um, using your own basically set of tastes, um, as the, as the, as the barometer of whether something is good or not. It's all you really have to rely on is what do I think? Do I think this is good? You know, so you can, you know, it's only, you can only do so much and, and you can, you write something that you think is good that you would want to read that you think is entertaining or powerful or gets across whatever you're trying to get across. And then also you can work really, really hard at making it the most professional product you can, you know, it's, it's right. edited and proofread and it has a great cover or whatever. Um, and, you know, or if you're a musician, you know, you, you, you record it to the best of your ability and you mix it to the best of your ability, whatever that. So, so there are things you can do, but to, to, to a certain extent, you're relying on your own set of um, what you think of as, I hate these words, good or bad, but to what you think of as good or, you know, good or bad. And it's different than quality because you can have a really, High quality. You can be a great writer, but not be a great storyteller. And yep. um, yeah. So, and um, so anyway. So, and, and you're never going to please everybody. No, you know, not everyone likes the Mona Lisa. Not everyone thinks the Mona Lisa is a, the greatest piece of greatest painting ever painted. Um, but it sure is popular, right? So, <laughs> um, so I. But you know, not everyone's going to like your book. Not everyone's going to like your song. Not everyone's going to like your painting. And to expect that is to be naive and ignorant of the way of the real world. But what you do hope for is that there are enough people who enjoy what you've created that you can make a living doing it and continue yeah, to keep do going. it. And that enough, enough, right. And that you can sell enough, you know, stories so that you can write more stories. And so it's a strange thing, but then there are readers who, I mean, that's where the whole cult, thing comes in right like there are readers like um writers like legati who aren't really mainstream per se but they have such a hardcore following that that they continue yeah. to, to live throughout the decade so um so all that to say is that i think when i any writer you just you just hope that um a majority of people who read it like it and the people who don't like it don't like it because it's not to their taste or it's not something they can, a story they connect with or whatever. And not that they hate, you know, um, you know, maybe dislike the, you know, dislike the writing or whatever, the things you can control. But, but again, you, you know, but then, <laughs> but then there, for whatever reason, I mentioned this earlier, for whatever reason, with a lot of my work, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of, I get a lot of anger when it comes to my work. And I'm not sure why that is, but I don't think it's, I do think it's unusually, people tend to get unusually emotional about my work. And I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure why, but I tend to get a lot of very like, um, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, um, exact exaggerated responses to sometimes huh. some of my stuff. But, um, but I guess it's a good thing. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> 
but yeah, no, oh, and it's no all presses, I have to say that most yeah. more people. Yeah, people either really tend to really like it or really, you know, they're really mad at me for what I what I did. But um, but Boys in the Valley, I think, is a very commercial book. It's probably my most commercial book, um, even though it's horror. Um, at least my most commercial book to date. So I'm hoping that it gets sort of more of a a wider readership um, than maybe some of my more um, like gothic, for example, one of my other novels is is pretty old school horror, very much purposely so. Um, I think a lot of mainstream readers don't really know what to do with that book. Um, whereas I think Boys in the Valley will be a little more uh, digestible to folks who don't necessarily read a lot of horror. That's the hope anyway. Yeah. But, Although it and, is pretty dark. <laughs> I don't know. It is. It's dark. Well, here's the thing too. You never know how you're going to find your audience, right? So um, you might have that one that opens people up to you as an author and then they go back and they read other stuff and they're, they're like, why the hell didn't I find this, you know, when it came out, you know? So um, yeah. there's a, there's, I've, I've, you know, I've been podcasting about books since the early 2010, 2011. And I've seen such kind of crazy shifts in like fan fan bases for authors. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but that's, a lot of it is out of your control. You wrote the book, you can promote it, but you can't go up to every person and say, Hey, do you like these things? This might be a book you enjoy. So yeah, like you just yeah. got to hope, and I, I, hope it lands well. Yeah. And I think I'm the kind of author and I'm okay with this, that I think my, I think there, my books will be very case by case with readers, um, which may be a detriment to my long-term career, but um, <laughs> I'm not one of those guys. I'm not like Riley Sager or whatever, we're like, oh, well, if you read one, you you kind of, you can go back and read all the other ones and you're going to, you know, it's all this kind of the same style of book, um, which is fine. Riley Sager is doing very well. I just, I think with me, like I said earlier, I really, for me to stay interested in my own work and to create what I feel are interesting stories, I always want to experiment. I always want to be trying something new. Uh, I have a book that hasn't been announced yet that's coming out in 2025 that's a science fiction thriller that's pretty much hard sci-fi and um is really not i would not classify it in any way shape or form as horror um yeah. i have another book that my agent has and is currently shopping around which i again i would say is more of a mainstream thriller it's not I don't, it's not really horror. so but then i have another book i want to my next book will definitely be horror so you know i, I like i said i like to kind of do I like to play in different sandboxes. Um, I wrote a book called don't let them get you down, which is, you know, which is this one right here, which is, mm -hmm. um, which is not genre at all. It's a, it's a, it's a novel about depression and anxiety. Um, so, you know, so I, I just like to kind of write what I, what I want to write. Um, where I kind of, I think horror, I kind of think of horror as sort of my home base, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of something I like to, re I like to return to. And I think all my stories, even, that one I just mentioned, they are def they're all, they're all, they all sort of reside in the dark side of uh, the universe. But, um, but yeah, but it's for me, I like to, I like to do different things. I like to challenge myself and, and, you know, who knows, maybe I can find like a sci-fi readership and a horror readership and, and, you know, I'll have, I'll have a couple different places to sell my things, but, but, um, but yeah, for me, it's funner to, 
to change it up. So I do think that, and even mm-hmm. my horror books very why why you know widely uh child and always strangers is a 600 page crime procedural you know kind of like creature feature hybrid uh, you know gothic is very much an old school hardcore horror book and boys in the valley i think feel of as being a little more mainstream like i said so you know and that and that there's no there's no reason for any of that other than that's how I, whatever I feel like writing at the time is, is what I write. And, and I like, like I said, I like to go in knowing what kind of book I'm writing. One of the mm-hmm. first things I think of before I start a book is what is the tone uh, that I want this book to have. Um, and once I establish the tone, it's the, uh, then I begin the actual story construction. But it starts with, for me, it always starts with tone. Um what kind of feeling do I want people to have reading this book? So that's cool. always been the most important thing for me. Yeah. Huh. So when you were saying that one of the authors that came to mind that I feel uh, he probably has kind of a vein of the same kind of feeling he gives you in his writing, but it does seem like it's kind of varied as Brian Evanson, like um, from the stuff I've read, at least like it goes to kind of extremes of like being more sci-fi, being more horror, yep. being just yep. like kind of down the middle. Um, but man, that guy, not only can that guy write so like ridiculously well, he always tells you happy birthday on Facebook without fail every year. So, <laughs> um, that's Brian, what I, that's is, <laughs> Brian is one of the nicer guys you'll ever meet. And he's a good friend of mine and he's a wonderful writer. And, um, yeah, no, and for sure. Like he does sci-fi, he does what I would call almost surrealist, Mm -hmm. um, literature, surrealist, surrealist fiction. And then he does, um, straight up horror. Yeah. Body horror. He's big into body horror. Um, so yeah, he can go from, he goes to, but you're, you hit the nail on the head, which is everything he writes is such, uh, of such quality that you don't really mind, um, you know, you, you uh, not really, don't really mind, but you, you, you don't mind him switching around the genres on you because it's always a Brian Evanson story. And he also writes, yeah. being a Brian, you know, he also writes a lot of like movie tie-in stuff um, yeah. Yeah, under BK Evanson. He wrote like some alien stuff and he wrote a couple of, wrote a Rob Zombie adaptation. And he actually even wrote an original novel called fear. I'm, is it feral, 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 like the cat, like a, you know, like a feral creature. But anyway, mm-hmm. he wrote a book called Feral, which was based on a screenplay of a movie that was never made. So he does some, um, he does some, he's, he's kind of, he gets around. Yeah. He does some wild yeah. stuff, but he's a wonderful writer and an <laughs> even more wonderful, uh, human being. He's a, he's such a great guy. He, he is. I'll, I'll tell you my quick two little things where this guy won me over like crazy. I got the opportunity to interview mm-hmm. him two different times in my old podcast the first time, so we had scheduled it, <clears throat> whatever, the day comes, we get on the call, and he says, my voice might be a little bit off or scratchy or whatever. I just had throat surgery yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're like, do you need to reschedule? Like, this sounds right. <laughs> important. Um, and he's like, right. no, no, yeah. I'm sure it'll be fine. And he was totally gracious about it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this guy's really gracious. The second time I talked to him, um, we scheduled it in advance. The day comes, gets on the call, 
and it just anecdotally says like, oh, my, my kid was born yesterday or something like that. Like my baby was born <laughs> I was yesterday. Say, he probably does. He probably, I was going to make a joke about how he got on the call and said he was, his, his wife was giving birth, but yeah, you beat me to it. Yeah. But, and like, and, and I'm like, oh man, you, we can do this another time. And he's like, no, 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 it's cool. And he's just, yeah, he's always been my impression of that yeah, guy. He's besides being brilliant. Yeah. is just like, he's so yeah. Good. And he's a good dude. He's a good dude. Yeah. He's a teach. He teaches at Cal arts here and uh, here in the Southern California area. And uh, I got to speak to his class once and he and nice. I have lunch uh, regularly and catch up and, um, and he's going to be actually at my, Speaking of boys in the Valley, I'm doing the the book launches um, here in Los Angeles at this local store um, called the Village Well, and um, and Brian's gonna Brian's gonna do like a Q and A with me for the launch event. Awesome. So I'm a, I'm very excited that I get to I get to have my launch event with one of my one of my friends <laughs> there with me. It'll make me less nervous, but um, yeah, so good good guy, great writer. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to steer back to the book in a second, but, um, talking about Brian made me think about, um, the writer's guild and the strike and, um, how you do screenwriting, right? So are you involved in the striking and all that that's going on right now? I'm, I'm, I'm very indirectly involved. I'm more involved as an, as a um, fiction writer than mm-hmm. I am as a screenwriter because I'm as a screenwriter, I'm not W I'm not WGA. So okay. for folks who may not know writers guild of America, uh, if you're, it's a union. So if you are a screenwriter and you write for union films, meaning bigger movies, not necessarily huge movies, they're not, but you know, but movies with a real budget and that kind of stuff, uh, you are probably a WGA you you're in the union, you're a union writer, unionized writer. I'm actually a teamster. So I'm actually, gotcha. I'm in the teamster union because I work in film production as I used to, but, um, but I am still technically a teamster, but, um, but because I'm not a screenwriter, I'm not a WGA, WGA member. It doesn't really affect me in the sense of writing screenplays because I can still write screenplays if I want to, as long as it's not a WGA contract or I'm not scabbing. Gotcha something but i mean right, right. now we're not <laughs> writing screenplays because this is like we're not we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to feed anything we don't want to feed any product necessarily into the studios because uh, we we want the writers to get the w because you know want them to get what they what they're asking for so it's better just to do a hard stop on everything but right. as a fiction writer it's affecting me very much in this sense because i just happen to have um a few pending deals that are uh for for film and tv that are based on my fiction that are now all kind of on hold um so that's kind of a negative (laughs) for me um because i'm not wga so i'm not really getting anything out of the strike in that sense but um i am being affected negatively my career is being and my bank account are being negatively affected because i'm not able to um make these deals but it's a sacrifice I'm totally happy to make because I hope to one day be WGA and then I'll be very happy that the strike went through. And I have a lot of friends right. who are a lot of friends who are in the, who are in the union and I want them to have what, I mean, it's all, it's all very positive. So I don't mind it. I don't mind sacrificing in the short term. Um, if it helps to, you know, if, if it means they get the deal done, but, um, 
but that's the only way it really affects me. It affects me much more as a fiction uh, writer than it does as a screenwriter. That makes sense. And um, just thinking back to whenever that was the writer strike was in like 2008, late 2000s sometime where that had really like cataclysmic effects on uh, projects like existing shows projects getting made at all. Like it was really, there was ripples that kind of hit everyone. So like, yeah, well, longer, that was, the, yeah, I was gonna say that was when, that was when reality TV really took off. That's yeah. when your duck dynasty stuff really became a bigger piece of the pie because studios were scrambling for content. And so they just started doing yeah. reality TV shows. Um, yeah, that was a long strike. I think that was a hundred days, if memory serves. And I think I don't know how long this one's going to go for. Um, my gut is it's probably going to go through the summer. Um, I'm hoping it won't last much longer than that. But after four months of striking, um, things are start getting dicey because without getting too into it, but basically all the movies that are slated to come out are either have been made or are being made. But in about four months, probably three months now, because the strikes are going on for a few weeks, um, the studios are going to run out of content. So they're not going to have any new movies to put into theaters or put on TV because they'll have used up their surplus, if that makes sense. So so that's kind of when things are going to come to a head. So so I'm hoping it won't last that long. I don't know, but um, but uh, but yeah, it's important that the writers get exactly what they're asking for. It's super. The compensation. I we don't want to get into the whole WJ thing, but the compensation <laughs> between what studios and producers are getting and what writers are getting is is stupid sauce. So that needs to be balanced a bit better because without content, there is no content and the writers are the ones who are creating all the content so yeah um we're an important part of that machine <laughs> yeah um yeah i just oh man it, it I, I hadn't really even thought about the greater impacts of like what it affects but yeah once they run out of like stuff that's like in production or post-production or whatever there's also going to be that gap of like we need to start creating stuff to catch up. So yeah, like, yeah, it's a whole, Yeah, and you can't do, and you can't do reshoots and you can't like, look, when I wrote, I wrote a movie, I wrote a movie called girl missing that was on lifetime five or I don't know. Now I guess a decade ago, but I was on that. I was on that set for while we were in Minnesota for a month. And um, you know, filming that movie and I was writing new pages and that was a feature film. That wasn't a TV show. That was a feature. And I was writing new pages basically every night, um, for the next day shooting. So <laughs> that's how much rewriting goes into a feature. And I, and if you, I've worked in production for 20 years and every day, nearly almost every day you get a PA walks around every morning and hands out what we call sides, which are tiny little script pages. And the sides are changed. They're always like, here's the new pages. Here's the new pages. Cause everyone needs to know yeah. the crew members need to know what the new pages are because it's not just dialogue. It's, it affects equipment it affects locations. It affects lots of things. So, um, so, so point being is that, yeah, you can't even, 
you can't even rewrite stuff like now. Like so, even movies that are in production, like they have to they have to go by the script that is written. They can't change <laughs> the script um, because they can't because that's part of the that's that's breaking the 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 strike. So yeah, so it's an incredibly um, complex, difficult uh, time in 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 the entertainment industry, and I just I just hope it gets resolved soon and the studios share a little bit of their wealth. Yeah. I, I'm definitely an outsider on that, but obviously in solidarity with the writers um, and yeah, hopefully resolving that soon. Um, well, now, the exp- actors are going, now the actors are going on strike too. So who knows yeah. what's going to happen? Oh man. <laughs> um, podcasts will get more uh, famous, popular. Um, yeah. There'll be a lot more podcasts. <laughs> Uh, going back to the story really quick, um, because it came up toward the beginning of our, um, discussion about the book that one of the things that I kind of ticked away to ask about was that the evil in the book, uh, and correct me if I don't explain this right, but is, is kind of intentionally ambiguous. You don't really go into, we don't name the thing. We don't explain how it works. Um, and I feel like that was an effective way to do it in this book. Um, because then it puts it more on not what is this thing? What are the mechanics of it? It's more on what do the characters do because of it? So I don't know if there's a question there, but I'm assuming that was kind of your goal was keep the focus on the characters, not necessarily on this thing that is really kind of just pushing the story. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, in my mind, without I'm trying not to be spoilery. In my <laughs> mind, like you mentioned, possession at the beginning of our conversation. Like in my mind, there is there is an argument to be made that what happens in this book has no supernatural element whatsoever. Nice. Um, one could make that argument, and you'd get to be a difficult argument to win, but you could make that argument. And there is a part of me that was very purposefully suggesting that throughout this story, that there is not, it's not necessarily a slam dunk story of supernatural, of the supernatural um, or supernatural occurrence. Um, Now, there are things that would be brought into question like, okay, but what about X, Y, and Z? And those, those would be parts of the argument and the debate, but you could, you could at least make the, the, you know, the case that, that given some pretty wild circumstances, um, it's not, a, it's not a story of supernatural uh, demonic possession or whatever. Mm-hmm. So all that to say that, yes, you're correct in that it's really about, um, how these characters are affected by, you know, I kind of think of it as they're given a bit of a, you know, they're all kind of standing on the edge of this cliff and, and um, looking down into this abyss. And I think there's sort of a, think of it as sort of like a, um, and I think in the book, I actually describe it a little bit of, there's sort of like a, a strong wind comes and some of the yeah. kids get blown over the side and some of the kids stand their ground. And I think that's sort of, the way I think about it, if I was to m- put it into a metaphor, that's kind of how I sort of think about the influence 
that affects the the orphanage is it's sort of like this strong wind and 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 depending on how susceptible some of the children are to that um what the wind is carrying uh it, it, it kind of affects each one differently so that's yeah so you could you could definitely say it's ambiguous it is there the, yeah the, there is no um you know the ghost is in the machine kind right. of thing like it's 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 very veiled but um but i think it's satisfyingly enough you know i don't think there's a uh, satisfyingly enough of a, of a story there's no it's not ambiguous to the point where you're where i don't know as the writer because sometimes you read a story and you're like <laughs> and there's an ambiguous ending and it's upsetting because you're like the writer obviously didn't know how to end the story so they just <laughs> created this sort of ambiguous ending um this is not that story but right. um I definitely know what's happening, but, uh, and I think most readers do too, but, but you, but it, you could sort of, if, if one had the desire to have that debate, you could have that debate, I think. Yeah. Now that I was thinking, I was kind of analyzing my memory of the story as you were saying that and two things, um, I can't think of a moment where I'm like, no, this breaks that ambiguous interpretation. Um, but the other thing is, yeah, you could really see it if you wanted to, if you chose to to f- believe this, that it's like uh, a scary thing happened one night and then there was an epidemic of disobedience like that could realistically be Especially like that was the given, straw that, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of references to some of the violence that some of the kids had to endure, um, yeah. you know, under the under the guardianship of you know the priest and is and even though there's no you know um there's no like sexual assault or anything like that it's nothing like it's nothing like that but there are you know it's a strict it's a strict um it's a strict setting and you you made the point early on these kids come from broken these are broken kids these are kids who have been abandoned who have been outcast who have been orphaned who have you know and in those days you know when you know, a lot of those kids who were at the, if you were not an orphanage, you were being sold, or even if you were at an orphanage, you know, you were being sold to a factory as labor at the, yep. you know, at the ripe age of 12 or 11. So, um, so it was a, you know, it was a, not a great time to be a kid um, when you, when you were, when you didn't have money or, or, or guardians who took care of you. So, um, so yeah, these are all pretty, these are all kids who have been through it. Um, especially our hero, mm-hmm. you know, especially Peter, the, the, you know, arguably the co-protagonist, co, co, co-protagonist, if you will, I think with David, but, um, but yeah, he's obviously had a very rough, rough go of it as well, but he responds differently than I think, you know, than right. a lot of the kids do. And, and I think that's part of what I try and get across in the book. Also speaking of the supernatural is that, um, you know, the decisions that Peter makes or that each of the children make, those decisions ultimately, whatever you think about the evil influence, the decisions ultimately are made by the kids themselves. Right. And and those some and some of the decisions are hard decisions, you know. Um and uh and those aren't guided by some sort of spiritual Force, they're not guided by some sort of evil force. They are influenced, yes, but ultimately it comes down to what's inside each one of these characters, and that is what informs their actions, not not something outside of themselves. And that's kind of one thing about the book that I 
feel strongly about is that ultimately these kids all make up their own minds as to what they're going to do. Are they influenced? Yeah, of course, because everyone's influenced by their surroundings and their environment and their upbringing and all that kind of stuff. But, and maybe in this book, they're influenced by a little bit more than that, but, (laughs) but ultimately, ultimately each, you know, each, each of the characters knows what they're doing, which is why I think I shied away a little bit when you mentioned possession at the beginning, because possession sort of, it's a control like, thing. Yeah. It's a control thing. And this is not a control thing. These kids are making their own decisions. They just happen to be informed in different ways and influenced in different ways. That's awesome. At least in my yeah. mind. At least in my mind. No, it totally tracks. Um, yeah. And then uh, talking about, I don't know. All right. So if you think that this is too much, well, I'll just cut it out. But um, without revealing anything that happens at the end of the book, um, there was a couple things about it that kind of surprised me. One was that mm-hmm. I definitely in those final paragraphs was crying. Um, so sweet gave me a real, real emotional response that I didn't yeah. see coming. So that's fantastic. Um, and then there was like more of a hopefulness than maybe, um, I was expecting at the end too. So I don't know if that's just how I took it or if like, maybe that was, you were trying to make it baked in a little bit, but there was definitely like more of a feeling of, of hope than I thought you were going to sign off with. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, yeah, I definitely don't want to get into how the book ends, but, um, but I, I will say that the way the book is structured on the way the and the way the story is told, and what I mean by that is the technical way the story is told, the perspective, the way I construct the chapters and the perspectives, that all is intentional as to how it, how the ending sort of rolls out, um, and how it affects you. But I think the hope thing is, um, I think the hope thing is is, you know, I don't, I wouldn't argue against that. I think if you were to say you felt hope at the end of my novel Gothic, I would question. <laughs> I would question your sanity, but I think that, um, this book, I, I don't know if I use the word hope as much as I would. Um, there's, um, a very purposeful sense of goodness, I guess that sort of comes through yeah, yeah. in the, ultimately after this. And, you, you know, I kind of put readers through the ringer with this story. Um, so I think, I think by the end, you're just kind of hoping for something to hold on to. And, and, um, yeah. And I think in my own way, I, I do that. Um, so I think that's an, I think that's an appropriate response to have. I don't, I don't find it outlandish. I think the goodness thing is, is probably more accurate. All right. Uh, we just had a little aside that I had to cut out because it absolutely spoils the end, but, um, uh, that, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad that I got at least some of my thoughts about the ending, uh, validated. Um, and then for anybody that's listening or watching, obviously you're going to go get this, you're going to pre-order this book and, and un- understand for yourself, um, what I, what I was talking about or what I didn't talk about, I guess. Um, well, uh, so, um, outside of boys in the Valley, which I think is fantastic. And now I have to go just do a dive into, into the back catalog. You mentioned a couple of things that are coming up. So what's, um, what's official that's like kind of 
coming down that people um, would look out for uh, after Boys in the Valley. Yeah. I know that's just the dumbest thing because it's like you're here to promote that, and I'm bothering you about the next thing, but it's kind of no, it's great. <laughs> no, so I, yeah, anyone, I mean, if you're, you know, on the deep dive front, the novels, I mean, I've had so many books come out recently. So A Child Alone with Strangers came out last October, uh, Gothic came out this past February from Cemetery Dance, um, Boys in the Valley comes out July 11th. Um, and then next summer, summer of 2024, I have a novel coming out called Serafina, which is a civil war era, uh, horror novel, which I just turned into my editors a couple weeks ago. Um, and then I have another novel coming out in 2025 that's been sold that is, I mentioned earlier, which is science fiction. Um, that one has not been announced yet. And for those listening, when writers do stuff like I can't talk about it because it hasn't been out, it's not, trust me, we would love nothing more to talk about it. It's because the publishers um, the publishers have that right to make the initial announcement. And so we have to kind of wait for them to make the announcement. And then once they do, we can talk about it. So, um, so yeah, but that'll be coming out. So uh, th- that's what I have coming out. So I think things, oh, and, oh, I, and um, I told you I had too many things. Uh, and I have a story, new story collection called No One Is Safe that's coming out this October. So it'll be boys in the Valley in July. No one is safe in October. And then Serafina next summer, most likely June, I think is what they're targeting. And then early 2025 for my sci-fi thriller novel. Yeah. I thought there was something in the fall. I just couldn't remember what it was. Um, Yeah. 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 The story collection. Yeah. Which I think is a lot of fun. I just, I just uh, went through the edits for the interior yesterday actually and it, i think it's going to be i think it's going to be a fun a fun collection of stories so nice and then one thing i want to mention because it's the next conversation i'm having yeah it's the next conversation i'm having is you uh i think boys in the valley specifically got a page in sadie hartman's upcoming non-fiction book 101 books to read before you're murdered we i don't know if you did you know that you knew that I know, I know what's in there. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the, the book. Yeah. See, I haven't seen Sadie's book, but Sadie told me, or Sadie told me a lot, a long time ago that, that she was including it. I was very excited about that. Um, but I haven't seen yeah. how it's referenced or anything like that. I think she has it under like coming of age stories or something. I don't, I don't well, know. Yeah. Yeah. I have an arc of it. And if I was smart, oh, I would have had it, I would have had it not in my bedroom. Um, I, I would have it sitting next to me, but so I was flipping through it the other yeah, day. Take a picture. To, will you take a picture of it later? Yeah. Oh yeah. Message it to me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I asked Sadie for an arc and I, and, she, and I think she just got sidetracked. She, she, um, so I didn't get one, but that's okay. Yeah. That, well, yeah, I had to jump through hoops. Um, and be a, I'm, I'm Sadie's great. Are you, so you're interviewing Sadie next? So you, yeah. Talking to Sadie, uh, in a couple of weeks about that. And, um, yeah, so I have, cool. I have the arc of it and man, like it is, is really cool the way she put it together because kind of like you alluded to, it's, um, it's kind of broken down by kind of themes of different like types mm-hmm. of horror and stuff, but it's deep diving, um, some specific authors and stuff. It's, it seems like it's pretty well put together. So I get to dive into that next and she's, she's awesome. She's awesome. Yeah, she's she's very cool. She's been a big help to me over the last several years. Um, 
promoting my stuff and, 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 uh, and yeah, we're friends and yeah, she's a very, she's a very, very cool person and big, and a big, you know, big promoter of horror. So, yeah, you know, the, it's great that she's, you know, doing that cause it's definitely getting people on the, on the map who probably would not be on the map otherwise. So she's doing a great, a great thing. Yeah. I think that's something that we can all, as readers, because I'm not a writer, I'm a reader and I'm passionate about stories. And that's one of the things I reasons I do this podcast is because we could talk to each other about it all day long, but really we should be talking to more and more and more people about it. So um, I think she's really good for being a presence for doing that type of thing. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, um, for anybody who's watching the video, I'm showing it 101 horror books to read before you're murdered. And then, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I think it's under the demons and possession category, but you got a whole. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that well, then I guess I should have not said all that stuff about it not being a possession <laughs> story. But that's all right. Well, but it, it's. I think she generally put it that way. But yeah, like so. There's a whole. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a page. Like. Oh. So I was happy to see that you made it into that. Cause I think that this is going to be one of those things. I know there's others like paperbacks from hell deals. Hendrix put that thing together and it deals with a lot of like the old horror paperbacks and stuff, but this yeah, is, con- this yeah. is contemporary horror. So this is stuff that's happening right now. And I think that's going to be a great way to launch people into discovering a, t- a ton of people. So I was happy to see that. Yeah. You got, it should get a, got that. should get a nice wide, a nice wide reach for sure. Yeah. It's kind of cool cover. I like yeah, the they did a good job. It's good. So anyway, that was just a little aside. I noted it and I noticed it and I was like, um, happy to see that it was, it was part of that. So especially after yeah. I just read it and it just like the book beat the shit out of me. So, um, now I think everybody needs to get beat the shit out of by this book. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's a, it's, it's entertaining. It's, you'll be under it, yeah i mean if you're it's a gripping right it's like a gripping it's like a gripping sort of like page turning thriller right but with some some hard some pretty intense violence and horror yeah I guess. so um and pacing, that sort of thing <laughs> pacing is great by the way uh, i i didn't mention it before but you did say that you were you wanted to keep it moving and i will say that pacing is yeah. something that it's easy to notice when it's not paced quickly yeah. and um i was ripping through it i kept telling my girlfriend oh you know I, i'm interviewing this person on friday and i was reading the book this week and she's like you need to take some time to read and i'm like no this reads really fast so um, yeah well i wrote this is the, this is so this is a child alone with strangers you can sort of see the cover look mm-hmm. at that's a this is a big book yeah so this is 600 pages comparatively to, to boys in the valley this is twice the length of boys in the valley but but what's interesting about this book, and the reason I mentioned this is Gothic, which has the cool, scary cover. But yeah. what's interesting about the reason I mentioned the um, Child Alone with Strangers is it's a 600-page book. But one of the comments I I get um, from from a lot of readers is that it blew it just blew by so fast for them. So yeah. I I feel like that's that one. I definitely tried to make it like uh, really fast-paced and kind of like you know I wanted to kind of keep the action going and um and i actually play with um which i've never done first time i've done it in a book but i actually play with um tense mm-hmm. in that um novel so most people don't realize this happens at least i haven't heard pe- people re- mention it but so the book actually starts in 
the past tense. And then there's a point in the book where it switches gears into the present tense because things sort of start speeding up um, <laughs> action wise. So I think it's um, nice. it's sort of like almost like a subconscious thing that I'm like, okay, we're going to start moving a little bit faster now. And then by the end, it's, it's, I think it's a really just like a straight drop down the roller coaster, the big roller coaster hill. And I think the, the last hundred pages of that book um, are pretty intense. So it's a, if you like boys in the Valley, you would really like uh, child alone with strangers. It's, well, it's, that's it's getting kind harder. Of more of the, it's kind of more of the same, yeah. Gothic yeah. is a little different, but I would say Child is 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 similar to Boys in the in the. It's more of like a thriller adventure, fast paced, you know, kind of thing. So, but you know, mileage varies. So who knows? <laughs> uh, you you just reminded me of one thing I forgot to talk about with um, Boys in the Valley, and that is that it is almost entirely written in the third person, except for Peter's parts are in the first person. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Peter's chapters are first person. Correct. Yeah. And all the other chapters are um, third person with um, unique POV. So third character. Yep. So you're in one, you're not, I don't head hop uh, between, um, characters each chapter is devoted to one character um so but yeah but peter's there peter's chapters are told a little bit differently that just kind of made it feel more to me like it was kind of his story primarily um i don't know if there was like a bigger goal beyond that but like it made it feel like peter's telling me this plus there's more or something like that yeah there's some different reasons why i did it that way but that's primarily one of them i mean um is this is peter's story but it's also um yeah, I don't want to color the reading of it for anybody, but other reasons. <laughs> whether it's Peter's whether it's Peter's story or someone else's story is another thing that could be debated. Um gotcha. Depending on how you look at it. Oh, interesting. But, I'll have to think on that. Yeah. That's cool. Um Yeah. <laughs> you you think it's Peter's story because of the what you just said. Yeah. Because of the way I just structured it, but and but there's an argument to be made that there's another character who I think has just as much agency throughout as Peter, but, and by the way, just so people don't get annoyed or listening to this, all this stuff I'm talking about on the technical side, throw it all out the window. Cause it has nothing to do with the reading experience. <laughs> this is all just stuff that I do on my end. Um, that is, should be hopefully totally invisible to, to the readers when I'm talking about all this character development and structure and, don't worry about any of that stuff. You guys just have fun reading the story. That's okay. Yeah. That's leave the, leave the technical stuff to me. And, but the, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, that's not the point of, of any of this, uh, the way I write. Uh, my goal with writing anything is, um, my number one goal with anything I write is to entertain and, um, and then emotionally one way or another, you know, uh, it's this kind of genre, this kind of genre, that's all secondary to, in my mind, the first thing a, a book has to be is entertaining. And then, then from there on, you can have your, your nuances, but um, I always want my books to be escapes, not, you know, not, not things you have to like, not like at. homework. So that's yeah. not like homework. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And I think that's why that I've kind of navigated over the years to when I'm talking about a book, I usually stick to like themes I notice in the book and how it made me feel when I'm talking about it, as opposed to yeah 
really looking at the mechanics of stuff, but um, sometimes yeah, that's I like just me being a writer. <laughs> just me being a writer nerd. I like to talk about that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's all but, about, yeah. like I said earlier, it's about tone, feel, how this book yeah. makes you feel. I definitely want, you know, it's, uh, you know, people to have, I, it, it's a big, it's a big bonus for me. If people have an emotional response to the work, um, it's, it's an almost impossible thing to achieve with literature, but, or fiction, but, um, it's very tricky. You, you can't ham fist it. You have to let the, you have to, you have to let the reader come to you. You can't bring it to the reader. And, um, and there's a, there's certainly like a, an art to it, but yeah. entertainment that's that I can do that. I know I can do, <laughs> the, uh, but the rest of it's kind of like case by case. Yeah. Well, I definitely endorse that. It's an entertaining book. It's a quick read. It's a good read. It's, it engages you. Um, I could throw a bunch of positives at it, but everything you said, um, I, I fully agree with. Well, uh, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to someone who you'd never met before this conversation about, uh, no, of course. about the book and um, for the awesome story. I always, I, I always do my best to thank authors for their work because I never could fathom how much goes into it. But um, it, for me, it's reading for a handful of hours and then being like, it made me feel something. And for you, it's like a real effort. So really appreciate you putting in the time to put out awesome stuff like this. Yeah, sure, man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> six months equals about three hours. <laughs> the formula. That's crazy. Which, which is always kind of funny when you read people's reviews and they're like, I hated it. One star DNF. And I'm like, wow, that was a year of work. Gone. Just, right. just like that. Boom, gone. Yeah. Um, M- Mabel didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't appreciate that <laughs> that's one. No, that's the game. That's the game we play. So it's all good. <laughs> 